0: Welcome, one and all, to the Veterans Radio Hour. It's our tribute to all of those who served our great nation's armed forces, past and present, and their tremendous accounts of heroic duty and bravery. With your host, Brigadier General Dave Grange. And now, coming to you live from our Veterans Center studio, here
1: is General Dave. Good evening. Tonight we present a program that originally was recorded December 8, 2002. The subject was the attack at Pearl Harbor. In this program, General Grange features veterans of the actual battle itself, in addition to the author Carol V. Glynn, who assisted Jimmy Doolittle in writing his great autobiography titled I Could Never Be So Lucky Again, which stands against General Grant's autobiography as the two greatest American military autobiographies of all time. In addition to that, we were fortunate to have the wonderful Brigadier General retired George Bud Day. He was promoted to Brigadier General after he passed away. He was a prisoner of war during the Vietnam War, having flown missions into Hanoi, shot down, escaped, and during the time in his captivity was awarded not only the medal of honor but the air force cross he began his career as an enlisted marine in world war ii he then joined the air guard found himself in the air force fought all the way through the korean war and then flew again in vietnam he became the air force's most decorated officer a truly wonderful gentleman who in later life became an attorney and challenged the U.S. government to ensure that veterans eventually would get concurrent receipt of benefits in addition to their retirement, a landmark case that he won in the Supreme Court. Also, we feature Hal Delano Roosevelt, the grandson of Franklin D. Roosevelt, our former president during the World War II era, who ran at the time a philanthropic organization oriented on memorials at the Pearl Harbor battle site. You can hear more about this by listening to the program. Wishing you the best. This is a retrospective. This is back to Veterans Radio Hour
2: 1.0. Tonight in Veterans Radio Studio, December 8th, 61 years later. On that date, 1941, the mighty Japanese flotilla that attacked Pearl Harbor December 7th, 1941, was only one of several powerful forays. Tokyo had simultaneously launched. The Japanese invasion forces bore down on U.S. held Wake Island, Guam, and the Philippines, as well as Hawaii. Other Japanese expeditions attacked Hong Kong, Malaya, and Thailand. During the three weeks following December 7th, the world would witness some of the greatest tactical triumphs in military history. But also, it ranked as a disastrous strategic blunder for the Japanese. The Japanese attack made America's entry into the war a foregone conclusion. On December 8, 1941, President Franklin Roosevelt asked Congress for a declaration of war. Over the course of the next four years, the memory of the attack would rally the American people. Many Americans answered our country's call to defeat our enemies during World War II. How are they remembered today as we're ready for our next possible war in the Middle East? Keeping the promise, 20 years of service for medical care for life. One of the questions tonight that we'll discuss with some of our great guests. Those guests are Colonel Bud Day, a 30-year veteran, Congressional Medal of Honor winner, former prisoner of war, served the United States Marine Corps and the United States Air Force, veteran of World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. Currently a trial lawyer, representing over 22,000 GIs. We also have on a telephone with us Hal Delano Roosevelt, President of Government Relations for Emergency Electric. He's a grandson of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, great nephew of Teddy Roosevelt. He's the chair of the USS Arizona Memorial Trustees at Pearl Harbor. Our other guest in studio is John Berry, the outgoing president of Illinois Pearl Harbor Survivors Association, six years in the Navy, a Pearl Harbor veteran, 34 years Chicago Police Department. And yesterday, with Mayor Daley, he had a ceremony for the Chicago Remembers Pearl Harbor. That was a memorial at our Navy Pier here in Chicago. And also on the line with us is C.V. Klein's, author of Jimmy Doolittle Biography. So we have some great guests uh, tonight for our show, but I'd also like to recognize some guests from our live veterans' audience tonight. Uh, First of all, Tom uh, Gendarian, former POW, a Battle of the Bulge veteran. Um, Today is his 51st wedding anniversary. And he's joined with his lovely wife, Florence, tonight in the studio. (laughs) Also in studio was Len Bentini, the 173rd Airborne. Dominic Kearns. United States Marine Corps reservist, serving now. Joseph uh, Zien, United States Air Force. Bob Borowski, United States Army, 1st Infantry Division, Vietnam. Mark Demon, United States Air Force Air Operations Specialist. And now to our executive producer, Kenny DeCamp.
3: Thank you, Dave. We've got a unique show tonight. I'm so glad that Colonel Bud's here with us. And, John, I'm glad you're sitting around, too. You're listening to us on the veteransradiohour.com We've got a chat room. You can hit the discussion board and jump right in on the show with us. If you're listening by radio, call in our toll-free number, 866-928-2329. General Dave.
2: Okay, tonight uh, our dedication as we do every veteran's radio hour on a weekly basis, is to two individuals. Sergeant First Class Mark Jackson of the First Special Forces Group killed in a blast from a terrorist explosion device in the Philippines on October 2nd. Sergeant Jackson's unit was a humanitarian mission, refurbishing schools and hospitals, digging wells and providing medical assistance to those that needed it. Our second dedication tonight is from a casualty of October 8th. Another American service member was killed on a readiness training exercise on Palaka Island off of Kuwait. His name, Marine Lance Corporal Antonio Sled of the 11th Marine Expeditionary Unit. He was shot by two Kuwaitis tied to Al-Qaeda.
0: Here's today's military quote of the day brought to you with support from retired Lieutenant Colonel Dan Bogievich.
2: In 1940, the American people were adam- adamantly opposed to going to war against Hitler. President Roosevelt, actually, candidate Roosevelt, said months before the presidential election, quote, I have said this before, but I shall say it again and again. Your boys are not going to be sent into any foreign wars. Everything changed the morning of December 7, 1941. Roosevelt told Congress, yesterday, December 7th, a date which will live in infamy. Roosevelt demanded a state of war from Congress. After he received it, he immediately dispatched a top-secret cable to Winston Churchill. And he stated, today, all of us are in the same boat with you and the people of the empire, and it is a ship which will not and cannot be sunk.
0: You're listening to the Veterans Hour with retired Brigadier General Dave Grange. And now, back to the broadcast.
2: Okay, I'd like to go back to our guest real quick again here, and I want to just spend just a few few extra seconds to uh, highlight uh, our guest uh, one more time. Colonel uh, George uh, Bud Day, retired, 30 years of service from Iowa, joined uh, the Marine Corps in 1942, served 30 months in the South Pacific as a non-commissioned officer. He was then re- received an appointment as a second lieutenant in the National Guard in 1950. Called to active duty again for the Air Force in 1951. Served two tours in the Far East as a fighter-bomber pilot during the Korean War. Credited with living through the first no-shoot bailout from a burning jet fighter in England in 1955. I am going to talk to him about that a little bit later. Vietnam veteran, first commander of an F-100 squadron in Vietnam. Shot down over in North Vietnam on August 26, 1967, and he spent 67 months as a prisoner of war. Colonel Day was the only prisoner of war to escape from prison in North Vietnam and then be recaptured by the Viet Cong in the South. He has more than 5,000 hours of flying time. He is the Air Force's most highly decorated officer. Medal of Honor, Air Force Cross, Distinguished Service Medal, Silver Star, Distinguished Flying Cross, Air Medal with many clusters, Bronze Star for Valor with clusters, Purple Heart with three, Oakleaf clusters and a prisoner of war ribbon. He resides in Shalimar, Florida. His business is in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, as a trial lawyer. And he is the author of two books I'll mention, A Return with Honor and Duty Honor Country. Our other uh, key guest in the studio with us tonight is again John Berry, outgoing president of Illinois Pearl Harbor Survivors Association. Just had a great memorial the other day Honoring uh, fallen comrades from Pearl Harbor, 34 years of Chicago Police Department, and six years in the Navy, a Pearl Harbor veteran. Online also is Hal Delano Roosevelt, uh, President of the Government Relations for Emergent uh, Electric. But he's a grandson of uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, great nephew of Teddy Roosevelt. And he is the chair of the USS Arizona Memorial Trustees at Pearl Harbor. And that's where we'll focus our discussions with him tonight. And then again, also online with us is C.V. Kleins, author of Jimmy Doolittle Biography. And we're going to talk about uh, Doolittle Raiders a little bit too, because uh, it was uh, America's response to take the war to the enemy a long distance right after the Pearl Harbor situation. So first of all, uh, one of the primary reasons that we have Colonel Bud Day in here tonight with us is that there's an issue out there and it has to do with uh, 20 years of service for uh, medical care for life. And I'd like to ask Bud Day, just, just what, what is it all about? What is, what is, is there a broken promise of the United States of America with its World War II and Korean veterans, what is it? Yes, uh,
4: what happened uh, back uh, during World War II and uh, earlier the government uh, offered uh, a 20-year retirement with uh, 50% pay and full lifetime medical care, and that uh, problem—excuse problem, me—that promise was uh, fulfilled until 1995, at which point the government kicked us out of the World War II um, hospitals, uh, the uh, hospital system, and uh, basically told the vet that he was on his own for medical care. Whether it be uh, just uh, uh, hospital confinement or doctor or medicine, so uh, I sued them over that, and uh, we lost the case in the uh, district court uh, initially, won it at the federal circuit court of appeals level. It was uh, the government asked for rehearing that was denied. We then went to a uh, 11-member court, who uh, turned into a 13-member court that. Uh, just ruled against us on a 9 to 4 decision. The military members on the court were with us. The uh, non-military members were against us. We're looking at uh, taking this to the Supreme Court. We uh, have got in the fight to uh, win, and we're going to win.
2: Yeah, I think uh, you're quoted. until you're, the last round is fired. Isn't that right, sir? Exactly. Yeah. Now, you're representing over 20,000 uh, veterans. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Uh, the, we call
4: them the class act. Uh, what we'd intended to do was to turn this into a class action, but unfortunately uh, we never got to that stage at the trial court. So, But we have the discharges, uh, all the documentation on over 22,000 people.
2: Yeah. Well, one of our missions here in the Veterans Radio Studio tonight is to get the word out uh, to more Americans about the situation because how you treat veterans from previous wars directly affects bringing people into the military today because they watch. And uh, we're on the brink of another war, most likely. Uh, And if it's not uh, Iraq, it'll surely be something else. and, And people remember and they watch carefully about how veterans are treated. And, of course, being a veteran myself, uh, I totally support your efforts, and uh, we're behind you 100 percent on that. Uh, I'd like to turn a, a moment to, uh, to, to John Berry, because he uh, just did something yesterday with, uh, down at the Chicago Remembers Pearl Harbor with Mayor Daley. And what's, what's critical, that, that's some of the same kind of people I think Bud Day is talking about. Is that not correct, John? That's correct. Yeah, can you explain uh, what uh, what you did yesterday with the mayor, just to talk about the, uh, just so we can understand the people we're talking about tonight?
5: Well, we work on this uh, from one year to the next. Uh, December 7th, a year ago, we started planning for yesterday. And uh, the mayor is very gracious about helping us gather together from all parts of Illinois. And uh, he is a fervent believer in remembering Pearl Harbor especially in view of the fact that uh, there are seven Chicagoans still buried on the Arizona. There are 20, uh, there are 67 from Illinois still buried on the Arizona. And Illinois lost 125 men that day on December the 7th in various parts of the island.
2: Yeah, I, I didn't know that, I I, uh, I, I understand about 2,400 died, is that correct? 2,403. And three, and how many, sh- how many from Illinois? hundred and twenty-five were from Illinois. Yeah. Uh, it's just like, you know, Illinois, uh, I just want to put a plug in for the state here tonight because I think that's over a million veterans of the, uh, I think, 19 million veterans alive today, a million from this state. Alone, that's yeah, correct. Yeah, that's quite a lot. Now, um, on the Arizona, uh, I, I understand that uh, that's the burial site of many veterans still. Correct. Yeah. What? What? How many are in, in, uh, entombed in the Arizona?
5: I don't know the exact count now because uh, of the records. However, at the time there were 1,100.
2: Wow. And I and I understand. I, I think the number. I, I'm not sure, but I think it's around 900 are still correct uh, in, in it, the in the in the uh, ship.
5: And those uh, men who were ship's crew on the Arizona and who survived. As they pass away, it's their uh, family's privilege to request that the remains be buried on the Arizona and uh, each month there are burials of the remains of uh, a crew member of the Arizona and it's a very formal summer ceremony and there's a place on board the sunken Arizona where the remains are deposited
2: yeah well, I'm gonna I think we'll turn then to Delano right now because he's really much invo- very much involved in this. Uh, understand that December seventh, many were burned to death or drowned, uh, especially when the Arizona exploded and sank. And I believe around nine hundred sailors to remain entombed there today. Delano, are you with us, sir? I am good evening. Good evening. Thank you for joining us.
6: Thank you for having me. This is this is a great honor.
2: Yeah. Could you could you uh, just uh, continue on with what John Barry was was uh, saying about the Arizona?
6: Yeah. Well, we um, I, just to give you a a little of my background with the uh, with the Arizona and Pearl uh, Pearl Harbor. Um, I was approached by the National Parks uh, System about two years ago to see if I would be interested in, in chairing a uh, a committee. Um, actually a board of trustees uh, with the uh, hopes of raising money uh, about a 10 million dollar capital campaign project to to expand and uh, basically rebuild the visitor center at the Arizona. It was originally designed for about half a million people a year to go through and uh, it's been about a million and a half people uh, just about since we opened the doors. and so. Uh, beyond that, beyond just the number of folks that travel through there annually, um, we have really fantastic memorabilia that we would love to be putting out uh, uh, on permanent basis at the visitor's center, but due to the fact that the current facility is that wonderful Hawaiian open architecture, there's no real controlled spaces there, and uh, these things need, you know, with all that humidity and salt air. Uh, They really need a controlled environment. And that's how I originally got involved or or, or was offered uh, to get involved. It it seemed to me at the time that uh, that really, uh, uh, after talking to my wife Jan about it in great detail, um, it it seemed like a very natural and uh, 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 prudent thing for me to do uh, on a personal basis. Um, I'm only 43 years old. uh, my grandfather, you know, died in, 40, in uh, 45, and I was born in 59, so I missed him. But uh, my father, uh, James Roosevelt, who was his eldest son, um, he, was, uh, wh- he was in the Marines and fought in the South Pacific. As a matter of fact, one of the speeches that FDR made just prior or just a- after uh, declaring war in Japan was, uh, was referencing the fact that before he would ask uh, any other families to send their sons to war, that he would first send his own, and all four of his sons served in the four branches of the military in uh, in that war. And so uh, uh, Dad fought uh, as a member of Carlson's Raiders Battalion down in the South Pacific and was wounded on Macon Island and, and fought a lot of canals, fought Tarawa. And I've always thought, you know, boy, how could I, you know, honor my father and, and his efforts to, to make this a a better place for myself and for my two boys that jan and i are raising at this point in time and this seemed to be just a natural and um so uh i uh, obviously agreed uh with great pleasure to get involved with the arizona and 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 this is it is i have found just uh on a personal on a personal level that this this particular memorial i think stands out uh more so than um Almost all of the other memorials that we have here in the United States. And the reason I say that uh, with such conviction is because uh, what I've witnessed there.
2: Now, when we have Delano, I'm going to have to come back to you. Uh, We only got a couple of minutes on this segment. Let me please save that last part because we want to hear about it. uh, Because I want to go before we have to go to a break to C.V. Klein's, real quick, author of the uh, Jimmy Doolittle biography. Are you with us? Yes, sir. Right here. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk about this response, the Doolittle raid, and and at one of the next breaks. And we really need you to hang with us to uh, go into that because that's where we took the fight to the enemy. Are you prepared to talk about that?
7: Sure. You bet.
2: Okay. And uh, first of all, real quick, uh, when did you write this book?
7: Uh, the Doolittle autobiography. I helped him with it. That came out in '91. But I've written two other books on the raid. One came out in 64, and another one in uh, uh, the 80s, and it's been reprinted several times.
2: Yeah. Okay, great. We're going to come back to you. I just want to close this segment out, though, with Bud Day, because we're just, we're talking about, we're focused on veterans right now in the Pacific, but that's because it's December 8th, and that's appropriate. Uh, but Bud Day is talking about veterans and a lot of a lot of veterans in, in, in many different theaters. But I just want to ask him with the situation that it is right now, Bud, what is what do the veterans do for medical care? What do they What have they been forced to do?
4: They have to go to uh, Medicare, and they have to buy uh, Medicare B. Uh, Right now, because we got the uh, Tricare for Life bill passed in 2000, we uh, they have access to fairly decent civilian uh, medical care, but they are still having to pay for the care. Right. And that's our objection.
2: Okay. In the last, we got 15 seconds. What age group are we talking about?
4: These people will all be in their 70s, 80s, 90s. And we have two or
2: three members that are over 100. All right. And 65 and over, basically? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. We're going to come back to you uh, shortly in a second segment uh, to to every one of our guests and talk about this issue and our veterans. Kenny? That is just unbelievable.
3: This is our 14th program. We have to thank you all for being with us. We're going to recognize one of our new partners, Military.com, connecting the military community to all of the benefits of service, helping to locate old service buddies and veteran jobs, the GI Bill, VA loans, and even more. Military.com, saluting all who answered the call to our nation's service. Uh, we also want to recognize the USO, United Service Organization. This is that season. We'll be doing a show on veterans in the holidays real soon, so stick with us. That's coming December 22nd. Uh, we want to recognize the National Vietnam Veterans Art Museum, where Bud Day had the privilege of visiting today. 18th and Indiana in Chicago with uh, over 800 works of art from 160 artists including the ceiling sculpture above and beyond more than 58,000 dog tags of those who gave their ultimate sacrifice in Vietnam and of course thanks to the city of Chicago and the Veterans Council and their chairman Roy Dolgas for all he does to help us out Uh, we also want you to know next week preserving our veteran stories We'll have the producer of the History Channel, Pete Bardis, with the Library of Congress. And I want to give a great big thanks today as the holiday season starts to our wonderful General Dave. Because General Dave, you've been coming along and it's been very important to us. Thank you, Holly, for allowing that to happen. CNN, by the way, is with us tonight. Our good friend, it turns out, of David Grange, Mike Betcher, is in town, and uh, we've got a little bit of CNN coverage happening. So we want to thank them for spreading the word of the Veterans Radio Hour, Chicago, Illinois.
0: Eddie, soldier, the Veterans Hour with General Dave will settle in again after a short break break on the Talk Radio Network. Mates, the Veterans Radio Hour now continues full speed ahead on the Talk radio network. Aye, aye, sir. The Veterans Hour proudly presents our military hero's story of valor.
2: Now this week we're going to talk about a hero from December 7th. During a Japanese raid, many heroic deeds passed unnoticed and unmentioned in official reports. Of those recognized, none is more compelling than that of chief water tender, Peter Tomich of the Utah, ship Utah. As the Utah's list increased from bomb damage, water surged through the vessel. Many sailors were trapped below the decks. To ensure the escape of his men, Tomich stayed behind at his station in the pumping room and thus sealed his own doom. The Navy awarded him the Congressional Medal of Honor posthumously.
6: The Veterans Radio Hour salutes the active service person of the week. Made possible through the support of Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer. As they say,
2: PBR me. ASAP. Pabst Blue Ribbon Beer. Available at your local retail outlet. Tonight, uh, the Veterans Radio Studio would like to salute Marine Reservist Lane Smuts. He deployed this week along with approximately 60 of his buddies, other Marines. Lane is from Fort Worth, Texas. Texas. He is a sophomore math major at TCU and a Marine Corporal. He joined the reservist after finishing high school. Lane will remain activated for one year. He is a structural mechanic on a C-130 aircraft. Huah to Corporal Lane Smuts.
0: You're tuned to the Veterans Radio Hour with retired General Dave Grange, coming to you from the Veterans Center studio. And now, back to the show.
2: And welcome back. Our guest in studio is Colonel Bud Day, a 30-year veteran, Congressional Medal of Honor recipient, former prisoner of war. We also have John Barry, who is a veteran of Pearl Harbor and a 34-year Chicago police officer. We have online two guests, Hal Delano Roosevelt, president of uh, the Government Relations for Emergent Electric, he is also the grandson of FDR and a great-nephew of Teddy Roosevelt. And we have uh, C.V. Klein's, author of Jimmy Doolittle's uh, autobiography and several other books on the Doolittle Raid, two to be exact. He's on the telephone with us. Uh, on December 8th, even with knowledge that Pearl Harbor was attacked, on December 7th, the Japanese destroyed American heavy bombers and fighters parked on Clark and Iba fields, destroying 55 of the 72 P-40s and a half of MacArthur's B-17 bombers. In addition to striking Clark Field and Iba Field, Japanese planes also hit, Cavite naval yard destroying storage barges and facilities. I'd like to turn to John Berry, who is a veteran of the Pearl Harbor uh, attack. Uh, did you Were you aware of what happened, at, or, or how how quick did you find out about what happened in the Philippines and elsewhere uh, were you so involved with the Pearl Harbor disaster, that were you
5: even aware of it? Well, first of all, uh, I'd like to tell you my assignment. I'm overwhelmed uh, at being in the presence of Bud Day, sir. But I'm not a hero. I was there, and I was attached to the Naval Intelligence on December the 7th. And our office, our unit, was located in downtown Honolulu in the Alexander Young Hotel on the fifth floor. Our office and our agents and fellow uh, naval personnel were involved with keeping records and investigating subversive activities by the Japanese on the island of Oahu. When I arrived in Honolulu, middle of 1941, I was assigned to that office and immediately I was told what my duties would be. I was to learn the island as rapidly as I could. I was going to be assigned as a driver for agents, naval personnel, army personnel, FBI, secret service, and I was assigned also as chauffeur to my skipper, I.H. Mayfield. My duty was to learn every back alley, every back street, every neighborhood on the island, and that's what I did. I was put in place with a Chinese-Hawaiian fellow who was an agent, and he knew the island like the palm of his hand. And he taught me where to go, where the alleys were, where the streets were, how to drive down all those streets that didn't have any sign. Why? Because he knew that. I wasn't told a lot of things, but uh, he knew that I would be asked to drive certain personnel to certain places if anything ever happened, which it did happen. When I got there, we we knew immediately that there was going to be a war. We didn't know when, we didn't know where, but we were already on a war footing basis. As a matter of fact, December the 2nd, we were on a war footing basis because of the activities around the
2: island. Okay, and now after that, after those disasters uh, in uh, in uh, Pearl Harbor, the Philippines, Guam, Wake Island, other places, we went on the offensive, and uh, and of course Americans like to go on the offensive, take the fight to the enemy. And on April 18, 1942, 16 B-25s appeared over Japan, and lifted the gloom that had descended upon America and her Pacific allies since December 7, 1941. These brave, innovative, and, psycho- and the psychological attack was Doolittle's raid, known as Thirty Seconds Over Tokyo. It's, it's called different names. Conducted by the courageous Doolittle Raiders, and I'd like to ask uh, C.V. Klein, just Klein's, just to just to talk about that Doolittle raid, the impact that mission had on America for just a few, a, few, a minute or two. Well, uh, I,
7: this is C.V. Kleins, G.L.I.N.E.S. Um, the raid uh, had a tremendous psychological impact on the Japanese, first of all, because they had told their people that uh, they could never be attacked. And uh, it was just the opposite here in the United States. We had suffered so many uh, losses between uh, December 7th and uh, mid-April uh, that we needed good news. We needed it badly. And uh, the Doolittle Raid, when it was announced that a uh, number of American bombers had actually bombed the capital city of Japan and four other cities, uh, there was a tremendous morale boost here in this country. We could fight back, and we we, showed, we said we were going to, and we did. And that was the uh, the tremendous impact, and that was the really the main purpose of the raid. The physical damage was not very great. Uh, after all, there were only 16 bombers with uh, 2,000 pounds of bombs in each. And in the five cities, uh, they did cause damage, but it was not very consequential when you compare it with what uh, happened with the B-29s later in the war. But it was a first strike, and uh, it really uh, uh, encouraged uh, Americans that we could uh, retaliate, and we did.
2: Yeah, you know, you mentioned the B-29s. Uh, I guess after the Doolittle raid, that didn't happen until 26 months later.
7: That's right, mm-hmm.
2: Uh, so it just shows, and I also believe that the Doolittle Raid was the first time that was a joint mission where you had Army Air Corps bombers on naval vessels.
7: Yes, that was the first joint air action of, uh, of um, that either service had taken part in.
2: Now, uh, before we get back to the, the, the primary subject tonight on, on the taking care of veterans, I do want to ask Bud Day a question. Uh, from the Doolittle raid, there were eight prisoners of war. Three were executed. One was died of starvation. And I believe four returned. Um, I, I, you saw a lot of that yourself, I'm sure, of, uh, of mistreatment to our to our uh, our soldiers or sailors, Marines, airmen.
4: The 20th century was not a good time to be a POW, particularly an Oriental POW. Japanese uh, prisoners had a very bad uh, Korea. was terrible. And, of course, Vietnam was just gross.
2: Yeah. And uh, it's, uh, you know, Tom uh, Gendarnian is in here tonight. And, of course, he was a POW uh, in Germany from the Battle of the Bulge. And uh, uh, we respect what you went through and and, uh, your ability to continue to operate properly uh, from that ordeal. Uh, but let me ask you a question, please, on uh, some people say, what can service members themselves do about the issue right now? What can they do with this, the government, the situation right now on, on the medical support?
4: I think it's important that they recognize uh, their duty to vote. Uh, every little pebble that goes into a lake causes a ripple. I think that when I was a young um, Marine, you were apolitical you, you simply didn't get involved in politics we don't have any choice now we have very few voices in congress because there are not many veterans in congress uh, obviously the court doesn't have enough veterans in the, the court so i think it's very important that we stay tuned to the issues that relate to soldiering and uh, after career care and this idea that the government will break a very sacred promise to provide you and your family medical care when you're getting into your autumn years, to break that is really a breach of honor. It goes. It's more than just a breach of contract, it's a breach of the government's clear duty to the to the serviceman and, and we have a trust relationship with them that just uh, cannot be broken and it's important that the serviceman be tuned to that and that he stays in, in contact with his congressman. Or his senators, or something. But he is he proactive.
2: You know, it's uh, it's it's very similar to the whether it's written on on paper as a contract. It kind of reminds me of uh, code of conduct that a service member is responsible to uphold. Hold, but there's also a moral contract that the United States of America has to its MIA's POWs. It reminds me of that. And uh, and it's the contract that whether a recruiter had the right to say it or not, that, that this would be a, a benefit if you serve uh, for the 20 years. And, and both times were crisis, I guess, for most of these people actually when they joined up, World War II in Korea. Yes. Uh, that, that, that must be honored. And it's so important to the future of having uh, people join the military, and uh, the military needs. Needs people badly right now, but you answered uh, Bud Day a, a great question from Carol in Columbus, Georgia, and I'm sure that uh, she appreciates that. Um, what what is the future, uh, Bud, of uh, of this of this uh, challenge of this uh, this offensive that you have to to solve this problem?
4: I'm going to be filing an appeal to the Supreme Court, not uh, any later than the 17th of February, and in good American fashion, a bunch of of former military lawyers across the country have been in contact with me and have offered to file what's called amicus briefs, which means friend of court briefs. So when I file my uh, brief with the Supreme Court, these uh, various lawyers representing veterans around the uh, country will be filing briefs also. And uh, I, I trust that we'll be able to cover all of our issues in a good fashion.
2: Yeah. Okay, well, we're we're behind you, and we wish you well. And uh, got to keep up the fight, obviously, and and uh, and solve this solve this for our veterans. I want to go. We have about uh, what Kenny a minute or minute to about go. a minute to go. Uh, I'd like to go back uh, to uh, Delano, if I may. Uh, we cut him off a little bit earlier, and, and uh, Delano, I'd like you to explain, explain. We only have 30 seconds to a break, but we'll come back again in the third segment. What do you need in that memorial? What do you need right now in that memorial in Pearl Harbor? Well,
6: what we need is uh, we need to raise raise the money to, uh, to expand uh, and provide for the new construction for an enclosed and enlarged memorial for the visitor center. Ten seconds. And, uh, and that's, really, that's really the bottom line right now is we're raising money like crazy to get that done.
2: Yeah, okay. Well, we'll see what we can do to support you on that uh, from here. I'm going to go back to Kenny now. Thank you very much. The Veterans Hour continues to salute our nation's armed forces and their families
0: when the Veterans Hour continues on the TRN Talk Radio Network. now, with the update on military news from around the world, here's General Dave reporting.
2: During World War II, America's freshwater aircraft carriers proved valuable training sites for U.S. fighter pilots heading to the Pacific. Off to Lakeshore Drive in Chicago, uh, where the practice carriers Sable and Wolverine converted coal-burning side-paddle-wheeled tour ships uh, from the Great Lakes these were inland water aircraft carriers they would berth at navy pier and then move out into lake michigan for training these inland carriers were 300 foot shorter than the decks of the fleet carriers like the yorktown and the enterprise they were only 27 feet foot above the water compared to 80 feet of the fleet carriers the decks were made of wood many aviators qualified in these carriers in lake michigan for combat in the pacific And now we're going back uh, to our uh, last segment of our show. In studio with us is Colonel Bud Day, 30-year veteran, Congressional Medal of Honor recipient, former prisoner of war. Uh, He is working uh, on a a big issue uh, for our veterans, and we'll talk about that again in a moment. We have John Barry, uh, again, also a Navy veteran, Chicago police officer veteran, and uh, and just finished a, a great memorial service yesterday uh, for those loss of Pearl Harbor with Mayor Daly. We have uh, CV Glines. Uh, he is, uh, was a, uh, a co-author to help uh, Jimmy Doolittle on his autobiography and several other publications. And we also have uh, Delano Roosevelt uh, who is the chair of the USS Arizona Memorial Trustees at Pearl Harbor, a grandson of FDR and nephew great nephew of Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, okay, so what I'd like to do is I would like to, uh, just go back just for a minute uh, to uh, C.V. Glines on the Doolittle raid, and to see uh, these 80 men that went on the raid. Uh, you know, I was just talking to Bud Day in a break, and he talked about how this talked about how this raid was such a shot in the arm for the American people. And though many people say, "Well, wait a minute, you lost all the aircraft. Uh, some were K.I.A. One aircraft was lost, uh, I guess, in interned in the U.S.S.R." Uh, those guys are gone. Uh, eight POWs, half of them were uh, killed by the Japanese. Hundreds of Chinese, if not a thousand or so, were, were executed for supporting the Doolittle Raiders. Um, was the mission worth it?
7: It certainly was. The um, not only the morale factor, but the fact that it started the Japanese to uh, change their strategy in the Pacific. And uh, that was what persuaded them to uh, uh, pursue uh, an attack on Midway. And as we all know, the Midway Battle of Midway was disastrous for the Japanese. They lost four carriers and hundreds of men, and uh, it was provoked by, uh, by the Doolittle Raid. So it had an effect far beyond just the psychological impact on, uh, against the Japanese and for the American people.
2: Yeah, I understand. After that, it was also Coral Sea, uh, and I believe a few other victories, a string of victories for the United States.
7: Yes, uh-huh. But it was a battle midway that uh, was provoked uh, directly because of the raid.
2: Yeah. Uh, do you keep in touch with any of the Doolittle Raiders today? Oh, yes. Today?
7: I'm, I'm their historian, uh-huh. and there are 20 of them still living out of the original 80, um, and uh, they'll meet for the next reunion in April at the Jimmy Doolittle Air and Space Museum, which is a brand new museum dedicated to the boss, and uh, we'll all meet out there at that time.
2: Where, where is it located?
7: It's at Travis Air Force Base. They've, uh, they've just gotten some uh, new property across the highway from uh, the um, Travis Air Force Base, and uh, we're going to dedicate it in April.
2: Okay. Uh, is Delano with us still? Delano? Yes. Okay. Uh in summary, could you just give us one minute of the effect that the memorial that uh, at Pearl Harbor um, of the USS Arizona, what effect does that have on the American people?
6: Well, it's, 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 uh, I think it's trans- transformed itself from a memorial into a place of uh, a couple things. One, a place of learning. It's a place where, where we can teach our children who have absolutely no no idea really what war is. Uh, they don't know what the depression was all about, anything like that. And this is a place of learning, I think. The second thing is, more importantly, so it's a place of healing. On the 60th anniversary, we put uh, Pearl Harbor survivors along with uh, the actual um, uh, dive bomber pilots that are still around uh, on the same stage. And... Uh, it was a, it was an absolutely magical thing to see these people come together, shake hands, embrace each other, recognize that we were just doing for our country, and and to see that kind of healing happen, uh, it really makes one, you know, look back at their own lives and say, geez, is it really worth it? What I get upset about on a daily basis, it was truly an amazing thing.
2: Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you, Delano, and I would like to go to John Barry now and just give us 45 seconds of the importance of, like the ceremony you attended the other day with the mayor, how important is that to uh, the American people uh, and respect for your fallen comrades? I, that's
5: why I'm active in the Pearl Harbor Survivors, my, our hue and cry is remember Pearl Harbor, keep America alert, and yesterday what we said there was, remember those present are Pearl Harbor survivors. But in effect, why we were there was to remember those men who had no choice in the matter. They were killed on December the 7th. And that was one of the main reasons why we gather each December the 7th, to remember those who paid the supreme sacrifice in defense of our country.
2: Thank you, John. And uh, those that are on the chat chat room, we're going to come back to you for about 15 minutes after the show to answer all these questions that we have, at least most of them. But in closing, I'd like to turn it over to Bud Day. In about 30 seconds, just leave something for the audience to remember about your effort right now to support the veterans.
4: It's every uh, veteran's duty to make sure that uh, we hold hands uh, as we as we go forward into. Uh, to war it's uh, important that we hold hands in peace and uh, certainly if we don't uh, protect the benefits that uh, are guaranteed to us the following generation will have done so uh, it's important that uh, you vote it's important that you uh, stay interested in politics it's interesting it's important that you do your duty
2: okay thank you bud day and thank you for all our guests tonight hua
3: Back, everyone. We're glad you're still with us. We're here on uh, the Internet. We're streaming uh, how many countries? I think we're at 457 tonight or something, having uh, a very unique time here with Colonel Bud and John Barry. We had to say goodbye to uh, Roosevelt. Uh, Mr. Roosevelt had to leave. He's got a situation he's dealing with out in Long Beach, California. We wish him very well, and we thank him very much for being with us. C.D. Glines is still with us, General. Uh, but I know you've got a question here on our chat room. Uh, I think we want to get to.
2: Yeah, I, let's go to Hal. Hal, yeah, Hal first uh, from Burlington, Texas. Uh, he has a question, I think it's for Bud Day. Uh, let me see if I can relay this properly. As a contracting officer's technical representative, I had the, I had it made, let's see, I made a verbal modification to a contract the government would have been liable for the modification. How can courts say that these promises? that were made by recruiters and career counselors, officers, and NCOs are not binding. They really have to stretch it. Um, There is no real logical
4: interpretation that uh, says that is true. Under the Little Tucker Act, uh, any uh, government agent can contract with another uh, person or a company and bind the government up to $10,000, which obviously you've done and you understand that that can be done. How the court can worm their way out of this to be straightforward with you is more than I can understand, because uh, there was no question that there was an offer, there was an acceptance, and then there was performance, and that's what it takes to to, uh, put a contract together. But uh, somehow or another, they have uh, uh, basically wormed around that and with a real distorted uh, kind of reasoning have said that that it was a... uh, a good faith promise which they breached Now explain to me how you can breach a promise in good faith <laughs>
2: <laughs> well I think that that uh, I think that answered Hal's question and answered uh, my, my thoughts on it. Uh, let me go to Big Steve and I'm not sure where Big Steve is from anyway, uh, he has a question for uh, CB Glines. Cl- Uh, Was there a B-25 that landed wheels down in Russia, and it's crewed and turned until the end of the war?
7: Uh, It is true that one of the B-25s, the pilot elected to um, go to Russia because they were so short of fuel that uh, they couldn't possibly have made it across the China Sea to China. So he made the decision, command decision, to go to Russia, and he did land wheels down. The airplane was intact. The crew was not hurt on the landing. And, the, uh, and the, the airplane was impounded, and they were uh, uh, captured, of course. And uh, they spent the next 14 months in Russia until they uh, were uh, escaped by uh, the help of a border runner into Iran.
6: <laughs>
7: so it's true that uh, five of them did, uh, were uh, made uh, internees of the Russians during that period.
2: And they never came back.
7: No, they 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 came back 14 months later. Yes, after
2: after the lines moved. I beg your pardon. What caused them again to get come back?
7: Oh, they they were uh, they got uh, they were able to escape with the help of a border runner.
2: I see. Okay, I misunderstood. They had
7: some money between them, and they finally got to the point after 14 months in southern, south, uh, eastern, southwestern Russia, uh, to. uh, either way across
2: the border. All right. This question is from code name Be Prepared. Pearl Harbor is still vulnerable. The British had broken the Japanese JN-25 codes, and Winston Churchill had warned us of the attack. There is no guarantee that people who live in secret will warn the rest of us in the open about an attack. You can get commercial satellite imagery and target attack surface ships. Why doesn't the Navy drop a carrier and build the mobile offshore base (M.O.B.) so we cannot have to rely on fixed bases like Pearl Harbor so much? John Barry's dying to answer that one.
3: What do you think, John?
2: No, don't go into the mobile base. Uh, that, that's a readiness issue, and, and I, I can answer that one if you want. But do that. What about the what about what about, what about the intel part, though? Uh, you had said something about December second. I like to go back to that from the show when you mentioned about December 7th, uh, what we thought was going to, you know, we thought war was imminent and that, um, there was a lot of activity
5: on December the 2nd. The, uh, higher ranking officers were meeting more than, uh, they did in the patent the month before. And, uh, I was involved there because I was a chauffeur for our skipper. Right. But, uh, we, there was actually no uh, hint of an active war until we sank the sub off of Pearl.
2: Yeah, the mini-sub.
5: The mini-sub, right. Sub, yeah. right. Yeah. At that time, my training was uh, finished. I was in the field uh, serving the intelligence office, and uh, we r- I was with an agent who had to do with setting up a radio communicating equipment around the island. This was necessary because you had to have one unit attached to the main base.
2: Um, okay, and I want to. I'm going to answer the MOB problem. I think you're going to see some type of uh, barge. Uh, mobile platforms set up, place just like prepositioned stock, uh, wartime, wartime uh, reserves, just like we have in Korea, the Middle East, Italy, Dago Garcia, etc. I think you'll see some of those things that'll be moved uh, in a theater air, within a theater to critical points for launch and recovery of aircraft and special operation raids, etc. I think you'll see some of those things, but the life of the carrier is alive and well and with the recent uh, issue in uh, the Middle East, of possible war for Iraq, uh, with maybe limited basing, uh, the aircraft carriers are, are more prominent, carrier groups are more prominent than ever, so I don't think they're gonna go away, and, and, and rightfully so. I wanna turn to Carol, and she has a question reference SEER training, survival uh, escape, or uh, evasion resistance escape training. Uh, saying it's not mandatory actually it is mandatory for certain units, but for the overall military. It's not mandatory Do you think that the armed services should make make it a mandatory class? That every soldier or, or every service member should take that's put into harm's way. I'll ask Bud day that question if it's all right
4: uh, Yes, I, I, I agree with that idea. I think it should be mandatory particularly if you have the funds to do that if you can't go to, and there is a, a great SARE school out. It's called the Colonel Bud Day School, right. and uh, and I recommend you go out and re- see the sign at least. And <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that training uh, is very relevant, and uh, it's uh, it's important to uh, learn a lot of the re- resistance te- techniques, and it's uh, certainly important that you learn how to get out there and navigate, find your way around. So uh, I. I my personal uh, vote would be to uh, send everybody if we have the uh, the dough to do it.
2: Yeah, uh, I agree with you, and I'll, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But I'm going to ask that same question to CV Glines also because of uh, the escape and evasion, and also captivity of some of the Doolittle Raiders. Uh, CV,
7: well, there were um, eight of them were captured by the Japanese, and of those eight, three were executed by firing squad. Had a mock. The Japanese had a mock trial and uh, determined that three of them should die. So uh, the fourth one died in prison uh, from malnutrition. The other four survived and were returned after the war. And of those four, still, still, are, three are living.
2: But what about training uh, ahead of time? Did do you know? Are you aware of, of the pilots receiving any kind of escape and evasion training before they went on a mission?
7: No. The only. Uh, instructions they got was on board the carrier the hornet uh from dr white who gave them briefings about the sanitary conditions in uh, china and warned them about uh, drinking the water and that kind of thing but no other kinds of uh, uh training they didn't go they didn't have any such thing as the reno school that we had later and things like that so uh i would say that they got minimal if uh, it, and no training at all really when it comes right down to uh Survival training.
2: Were well, they issued any kind of an escape kit, like blood sheds, pointy talkies, uh, something in uh, the different dialects No, those, China. those
7: came a little later in the war.
2: So they had none of that? No. Wow. Fairchild's a great school. There's other serious schools that are great. Uh, um, you know, Special Operation Forces have uh, are lucky because they all get to go to that type of training. Yes. Uh, as... Uh, but they knows there's different levels of SEER training, A, B, and C. And after I had the misfortune of having three of my soldiers taken prisoner in Macedonia by the Serbs during the Kosovo campaign, uh, you, you can't get the slots. Uh, there's not enough uh, training slots available or instructors to handle even what's required by the military regulation to send people to... Uh, Uh, SEER school. So it's uh, very difficult, uh, but after, just like you said about uh, taking care of the 20-year veterans on uh, lifetime health care, we raised so much cane about it that they improved and we were able to do some things locally of modified courses just so we can get all our helicopter pilots and our cavalry and our scouts and all those guys trained because uh, we thought we were going to go uh, either to war uh, in the Middle East or into uh, Kosovo if it wasn't just an air campaign, but it's still a it's still an area that needs a lot of improvement. And I, Carol, you got a lot of answers on that question, so <laughs> I hope you're satisfied with the discussion uh, from the uh, from our guest. Go ahead, Kenny. Hey,
3: uh, Colonel Bud, tell us uh, what's what's for you next. Well, we know you got a, a big week coming up uh, this week, and could you explain a little bit uh, to our audience uh, how proud I am about it. Well, thanks. I'm uh, going to Sioux City tomorrow.
4: Uh, Ross Perot uh, was uh, kind enough to uh, build a a nine-foot statue on a four-foot base, and they're going to unveil it in Sioux City on uh, uh, Tuesday at 1.30. So I'm going to meet my family in Minneapolis tomorrow, and then we're going down to Sioux City. And they had named the airport there, Colonel Bud Day Field. So, uh, I'm going over to do the unveiling, and uh, and I'm just uh, very humbled about that. And then with, uh, and then with a little luck, I'm going to pheasant uh, to South Dakota and shoot a few pheasants. There you go. <laughs> and have a couple <laughs> nice dinners,
2: Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, anybody in the audience have a question of any of our guests? Now's your
3: chance. Have a well, we've been getting more and more in on the chat room. Go ahead, John. I'd like to say
5: a couple of... I'd like to say two things. The one thing I want to say is I want to talk about the memory of a couple of buddies of mine who were lost when the USS Langley was sunk after December the 7th. It was on its way to Guam and Wake to drop off a load of planes for those two airfields and some of my units were split the naval intelligence men were split and some were sent there and the Langley was one, was the first United States carrier sunk in World War II, the USS Langley. The other thing that I wanted to mention was about our Abraham Lincoln National Veteran Cemetery, which is located in Elwood, Illinois, south of Joliet. Our organization, the Pearl Harbor Survivors of Illinois, raised a sum of money. We had a memorial built in the new Abraham Lincoln National Veteran Cemetery there. It was dedicated a year and a half ago, and I advise everyone to go there and see this beautiful memorial which is dedicated to those fellows who died on December the 7th at Pearl Harbor. Thank you.
2: You're here. All right, thank you. You know, uh,
3: I don't know, Colonel Bud. somebody wanted uh, to find out. uh, I know about this. I'm wondering if you do. It has to do with a billboard that was put up in Waco, Texas recently.
4: Yes, I do. Uh, That's been part of our effort uh, when we first uh, cranked up this effort to get uh, the government to uh, to uh, stick with their promise, we decided to attack it several ways. One I filed a lawsuit, another was to go after Congress. And so we uh, started uh, a billboard program around uh, the country, which basically said, uh, Mr. Congressman, y'all have broken the promise to us for free lifetime medical care. And we've and we made an, an effort to put those in their hometown. In the case of uh, of our uh, uh, senior uh, member of the Senate, we put it across the street from his uh, headquarters.
3: <laughs> good, good.
4: <laughs> and uh, well, we began to get some attention. And uh, as a, the result of that was that we got Ronnie Shaws from Mississippi to sponsor to keep the promises to World War II and Korean vets, and Tim Johnson from South Dakota agreed to sign on in the Senate. And I might add, uh, neither one of these guys were in a real key position. Shouse was not even on a, on a military committee like the Armed Services or one of those committees. You know, he was a young guy from Mississippi. So the bottom line of what I'm saying is that uh, grassroots will do a lot of things. And I want to thank you for the opportunity to be here and, and hear you. and get your message and uh, to permit to people like John and myself and Carol Kleins and these people to talk about uh, some things that have happened to us, because all of that are part of our history. And if we can't keep the faith with the people who have served, uh, we, we've lost our way. you like have
8: a website
0: that, that you that people can get information on this uh,
4: Yes, I do. If you um, will go uh, on the net looking for uh, for uh, combat uh, pilots, I have a, a site called uh, ColonelBudDay.com, and uh, so if you get up on that thing, you can find me on the web. And also the Class Act Group, which is the sponsor of the Keep the Promises in the Class Act uh, suit, um, they have a website which I, I I can get with you after this. It'll take me a minute to find it. But we have a a big website about the uh, lawsuit and uh, about to keep the promises issued
2: okay and we'll make sure we follow up then we have jay Greeley, that's been on the line uh, for quite a while so we're going to take that phone call real quick he has a question for one of you jay are you there
8: yes sir i am I, well thanks just, for
2: uh you've been in lean arrest for a long time go ahead it's
8: okay i need to be <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> uh, uh this is a question for Bud day you know we we've got to keep the faith with our veterans and uh, you know, just this last week, I ended up buying a uh, uh, food for a veteran and paid for his uh, drugs and got him in to uh, see some county relief folks. Uh, first time out of a job, uh, Pennsylvania Proud-type kid uh, with uh, a young wife, and the first time he's ever really been uh, facing uh, the bare cupboards and bare feet. And, uh, you know, we got to have something that's going to help these guys. I think we're going to get them back in the fold. I think we'll put them into Charlie Company first, the 16th Virginia Army National Guard, get them signed up, but uh, have them come back. But there's an 82nd Engineer that we, you know, we ought to take care of.
4: Well, I think that's our duty. Uh, we we go to war with these uh, people when they're healthy, and we have to support them when things are not so good. And uh, I think it's uh, mighty great that y'all are uh, lending a helping hand.
8: We're, we're doing that as part of our 80s uh, a- program, Armory Emergency Relief, here in Loudoun County with the American Red Cross. And uh, we, The only reason I found him was we were running uh, the doctors back uh, during the snowstorm to the hospital and the nurses. And Here's this kid just standing there, and he comes up to me, and he says, Can you give me a ride back to Leesburg? He said, There's no public transportation. I said, Sure. And uh, we get to talking to him, and, you know, he's got no food. He's got... Uh, He's got to get the three types of medication, and uh, he's got no money. And we took care of that, but, uh, you know, I'm, I mean, how many others are out there right now who are facing the, the bear, as I say, or the wolf at the door, and nobody's helping them? Because they don't know where to go, and they're extremely proud people.
4: Well, our our, uh, our groups like the, uh, the DAV, the Legion, the, all of those kind of groups uh, normally have uh, liaison officers. Um, I think maybe an important thing is when these kids get separated from the military is to uh, kind of give them a little bit of direction on how to get help uh, should they have problems. We have some wonderful uh, trained uh, officials out in those veterans groups that are very helpful and. Uh, there isn't a Legion post or a BFW post that I know of that won't step up the plate and support people that uh, need help. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Jay, for for hanging in there uh, yeah. to join the group. I want to thank uh, all the guests again. Uh, C.V. Glines again, author or co-author with uh, the Jimmy Doolittle autobiography and several other bu- books uh, in supporting the Doolittle Raiders. On John Barry, a veteran of uh, the Navy, Pearl Harbor. Uh, 34 years in the Chicago Police Department uh, and also, uh, of course, Colonel Bud Day, 30-year veteran, Congressional Medal of Honor recipient, former Prisoner of War, uh, served in the Marine Corps and the Air Force, and uh, now in a class act group really uh, fighting hard to take care of veterans, who promised medical support for life if they serve their military for 20 plus years? So, again, thank you, and thank you all for our audience and our, and our guest online and those listeners. Thank you, Hua. Uh, General Dave out.
1: Thank you for that final word from our sponsors. This is Ranger Doug. We hope you enjoyed this program that encapsulated the World War II experience with even Chicago veterans of the battle, the infamous attack at Pearl Harbor. We have to remember, though, that after all that went on during World War II, we emerged with two mortal enemies, Germany and Japan, which, due to the amazing influence of the democratic forms of government present at the end of the war, were successfully able, through such things as the Marshall Plan and MacArthur's occupation of Japan, to turn Germany and Japan into favorable allies with wonderful economic histories and systems that persist even to this day. It's amazing what war can do, if people learn to terminate the conflict correctly. Ranger Doug out. Thank
2: you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Veterans Broadcast Network, bringing you shows like Veterans Radio Hour, Wounded But Not Broken, and Roll
1: Call. No One Left Behind.